When I first met Rob, we became quick, quick friends. He was a great guy. He, was, he is down to earth. He is unassuming. He has, a, he has a great sense of humor. He loves to laugh, and when he laughs, it's an entire, it's an entire body laugh. I love, to hear, I love to hear Rob laugh. And when we met, we immediately hit it off. After, after just a few weeks of knowing Rob, I figured out why we hit it off so quickly. He grew up on a farm, too. <laughs> I grew up on a, on, a, on a relatively small farm and ranch in far western Oklahoma, uh, and Rob grew up on a very, very, relatively very, very large in a midwestern state. In fact, in fact, his family's farm was so large, it was the largest farm in his entire state. They grew corn and soybeans and wheat. We often would talk about farming and, and the difference between farming in far western Oklahoma as opposed to farming where he was from. Whereas I, I talked about we would, on a, on a decent year, we would get 25 bushels per acre of wheat. Rob and his family, he said, they didn't even hardly... Uh, they didn't even hardly bother with harvesting if they made less than 80 bushels per wheat uh, per acre. He had no idea how we were able to do it out in far western Oklahoma. It, it, they, his, their family farm received a, a number of national awards because of their farming practices and the success and the growth of their farm. His dad, was, um, his dad was the president of, of numerous farming boards and agencies, both statewide and nationwide. But then, then the farming crisis of the 1980s occurred. Uh, many of you may remember that farming crisis of the 1980s here in downtown Oklahoma City. We were hit very, very hard. Uh, that it, the, it was both the farming crisis and also the bust and the oil prices. They all happened at the same time. Commodity prices dropped by 25%, land prices dropped by 60%, and those farmers who, were, who had been banking on those high prices for their crops, they were banking on them to pay for their overpriced land, and as well, those, the overpriced land began to be foreclosed upon by the banks. By the, from these farmers that simply could not, could not make the payments. In, in one 12-month in one period in the late 1980s, over one million farmers went bankrupt in one single year in the late 1980s. Rob's dad was certain that this would not happen to him. And so he began to fudge here and there on his tax returns and, um, well, he began to more than fudge during the decade of the 1980s. He began to defraud the government. And finally, he was caught, and in the late 1980s, he was sentenced to federal prison because of tax fraud. They lost their family farm, and the, and the family was, well, they began to live in shame. A dramatic, uh, a, a dramatic event such as this is more commonplace than than you, than anyone would really even imagine. Success often turns sour. Success often turns sour. It may be professional or economic success, 
but then the company lays off workers and people find themselves out of a job. Maybe a, a lifetime of growing wealth resulted in, in most of a person's wealth being held in the stock market and then the housing bubble burst or the tech bubble burst or some other economic bubble burst and the stock market takes 10 years to recover. Many of us have been through that. Maybe instead, maybe instead it's an investment that looks too good to be true, but you just couldn't resist, and it turns out to be too good to be true. Sometimes professional or economic success turns sour. But then there are other successes that turn sour. A marriage is fine until kids come into the picture. Studies show that men are least satisfied in their marriage when there are children under five years old in the household. Men are least satisfied in their marriage when there are children under five years old in the household. However, however, women are most dissatisfied in their marriages when there are teenagers in the household. Or marriage works, sort of, for years until the youngest leaves home and, and, and you recognize that the kids were the only thing that was keeping that marriage worth saving. So a marriage, once successful, begins to sour. Or friendship. A friendship is, is fine until there is a skirmish over kids. Or a neighborhood is fine until a convenience store moves in at the entrance of the neighborhood. Or a job is fine until a new boss or a new co-worker is hired or your school is fine until the bully turns his attention to you. Success can quickly turn sour for all of us. And we, and we never know when the successes of today will be the failure of tomorrow. So we better be prepared for it. We never know when the successes of today will, will turn into the failures of tomorrow. So we better be prepared for it. The truth is that disappointments are far more common than successes. I was watching a basketball game last week, and, and the, the commentator, uh, the, the opposing team, I believe it was the Oklahoma State game, and the, the opposing team was getting rebound after rebound after rebound, offensive rebound after offensive rebound after offensive rebound. And the commentator of the game quoted a quoted a coach, and, 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 and the, quotes, the coach said this, you have to prepare your basketball offense for missed shots. The majority of shots are missed, so you have to plan, prepare, and expect how to run an offense based off of those missed shots. In other words, most oftentimes, our success turns sour. Life is full of disappointments. I came across the following quote in one of the journals I read. The, the increase of suicides, alcoholics, and even some forms of nervous breakdowns is evidence that some people are training for success when they should be training for failure. This author went on to say, failure is far more common than success. Poverty is more prevalent than wealth and disappointment more normal, nor normal than arrival. In 1952, the Hayden Planetarium in New York City issued an invitation to readers 
in, their, in the, in the uh, magazine, the Popular Science Monthly, to become part of a crew that would fly on a spaceship to visit another planet. You, remember, you may remember in 1952, it was just certainly imminent that the landing on the moon would come very quickly, and shortly after that, then obviously we as humans would be traveling across our solar system. And so in 1952, they knew it would be just a few years away before that occurred. And so they invited the readers of Popular Mechanics to, to write in and to begin to, uh, to, to get their early boarding pass on one of those flights that would take them to another planet. Well, obviously, it's been more than just a few years since 1952, but years later... Years later, they thought it would be fascinating for psychologists to begin to, to look over the, uh, the applications. And, and the application form was quite long. It, it, it asked about motivations. It asked why, you, why folks wanted to go to different planets. And the psychologists, as they examined those thoroughly, they came to the conclusion that in a majority of cases, in a majority of those folks who wanted to travel to another planet, they had applied because they were discouraged with their lives here, and they hoped that they could find a new life, a new start somewhere else. When success turns sour, oftentimes there are no easy answers. There are no easy answers. Today we're beginning this sermon, a new sermon series entitled No Easy Answers. There are some times in life when there are not easy answers. This is not a, a, a series that, that you might find some of our popular uh, televangelists preach on TV. These evangelists that say life is rosy all the time. God wants to always bless you. God wants to make you wealthy at all times. And if you're not, you're doing something wrong, they might say. This is, this is not that kind of series. There are difficult things that happen in our lives. And when those difficult things happen, there's no easy answers at all. There's no easy answers. We aren't the first ones, however, for which life has turned sour. The biblical account is full of people whose success had soured, and they, like us, could find no easy answers. Jacob, Jacob was one of those people that life had turned sour. Now, Jacob had a twin brother named Esau, and the, the two had never, ever gotten along. The two had never gotten along. Even from the moment of their birth, they had, been, they had had this sibling rivalry. In fact, their relationship had deteriorated to such a degree that Jacob tricked his brother out of his share of the inheritance, and he actually stole his, the cherished deathbed blessing from their father. So Jacob actually had to flee from his brother, his twin brother, who had pledged that if he ever saw him again, he was going to kill him. He was estranged from his brother. At the beginning of this chapter that Dan read from, at the beginning of this chapter, Jacob is full of enthusiasm. He has just made a long and difficult journey from his home in Beersheba to the land of Haran where his uncle Laban lives. Jacob is young and vigorous, indicated, indicated by, the, by his act of moving his uh, large stone single-handedly 
when the Bible said it normally took seven men to accomplish that deed. He is young and full of energy. He enthusiastically began to water the sheep there that was at that watering hole, and he fell in love at first sight with one of the shepherdesses. Her name, her name was Rachel. And then he began to work for his uncle Laban, Rachel's father. So Rachel was his first cousin, but he had fallen desperately in love with her. And he had significant and great hope for the future. He was fully and wholeheartedly successful. But then, then things began to sour just a bit. By the end of the chapter, he has married the wrong woman. He has endured a difficult marriage experience. He has spent 20 years engaged in very difficult labor. One of the themes of, chapter, of this chapter is indicated by the, word, by, the, by the repetition of the word to serve. The word serve occurs seven times in our passage of Scripture or, or, in, or in this section of Scripture. It was not a pleasant service for Jacob at all. Listen, when this, listen to his description about those 20 years of service to Laban as he reflected on them later in his life. He says this later in the book of Genesis. These 20 years I have been with you, he says to Laban, your ewes and your female goats have not miscarried, and I have not e eaten the rams of your flocks. What was torn by wild beasts, I did not bring it to you. I bore the loss for myself. From my hand you required it, whether stolen by day or stolen by night. There I was. By day the heat consumed me, and the cold my night, and my sleep fled from my eyes. He worked for Laban for 20 hard years. One day, one day, Laban, who had, been, who had become incredibly successful and wealthy, came to Jacob and asked him how he could ever repay Jacob for all of the, all of the many, many years of dutifully working for him. Jacob answered one word, Rachel. What can I do for you, Jacob? And his simple word was this, Rachel. That beautiful, beautiful Rachel. He had fallen head over heels for Rachel. The Bible literally says that Rachel had a good figure. J Jacob had been watching Rachel ever since he had arrived. Laban, seeing an opportunity, uh, said that, it, well, if, if Jacob wanted Rachel, he would have to work for him seven more years. That was more than four times the normal price for a bride at that time. He would have to work seven years for his daughter's hand in marriage. The Bible says that those seven years seem like only a few days for Jacob because of his love for, eight, for Rachel. He could hardly wait to marry her. His life had been empty. Oh, he had been successful, but his life had been empty. He had never had his father's love. He had lost his beloved mother's love, and he had been estranged from his twin brother for years and years and years. And he certainly, he certainly at this point, had no understanding of God's care and love in his life. He must have thought to himself, if I had her, 
if I had Rachel, something finally in my miserable life would be right. If I had her, it would fix everything. At the end of the long-awaited wedding day, Jacob, being heavy with wine, went into the wedding chamber to lay with his new heavily veiled wife. Now, Rachel had a sister named Leah. Whereas the Bible describes Rachel as lovely in form, it describes Leah as having weak eyes. That's biblical speak for she was really ugly. <laughs> she was really, really homely. So, the morning after the wedding, as Jacob aroused from his drunk-induced sleep, he, look he looked across the bed and realized that it was the weak-eyed Leah, not his lovely Rachel in his, in his, in his uh, wedding bed. Jacob had been tricked. The daughter, the, the daughter that would have never been rid of was, was now married off to Jacob. Now, later, Laban said it was simply a custom that wouldn't allow the younger daughter to be married before the older daughter. And so Laban said, well, if you'll just work for me for another seven years, then, then you can have Rachel as your wife. But the fact of the matter remains. With all due respect to Leah from, from again, we can learn so much from her, a truth about life can be found right here. No matter, no matter what we put our hope in, in the morning, it will always be Leah. Did you get that? No matter what we put our hope on, in the morning, it is always Leah, never Rachel. Those things we try to find our life's meaning in, those things upon which we put our hopes and dreams, those things we look to for fulfillment will always disappoint us. Did you get that? Those things that we try to find our life's meaning in, those things in which we put our hopes and dreams, those things we look to for fulfillment will always disappoint we will always wake up with Leah instead of Rachel. We always will. And that moment brings into focus Jacob's disappointment and when the light of day reveals that he has married Leah instead of Rachel. This, here's what one commentator said. The words, Behold, it was Leah, are the very embodiment of of anticlimax, and this moment is a miniature of man's disillusionment experienced from Eden onward. This commentator believes that this disappointment, this disappointment with things that we put our hope in, that we put our trust in, that we, find, we can find fulfillment in, that's, that's the human existence because they will always disappoint when we buy that brand new pickup, I don't know, I'm, I'm, maybe I'm speaking from experience. When you buy that brand new pickup and you think it's going to be the perfect pickup, then it's within a week that you realize, you know, it doesn't have a light in the little console here. What's wrong with that? 
you know, my other, I thought it was going to have automatic uh, uh, high beams and things like that. It doesn't even have that. I paid a lot of money for this pickup. And then within a, two, a couple of years, if you're lucky, you're starting to search online for a new pickup that may have all of the things that you ever needed. You see, when we put our hope and our trust and we think that we're going to find fulfillment in things, they always disappoint us. They always disappoint us. That's why we talk about the only thing, the only thing worth bowing before is the Lord Jesus Christ. Because everything else will always disappoint us. Everything else will always be Leah, not Rachel. The enthusiasm of youth, of youth that Jacob began in this chapter, it was replaced by some hard realities. Things don't work out as expected in a career. And one day you wake up and you realize, behold, it was Leah. You enter into marriage with great hopes, but then you wake up one day with the same disappointment, and behold, it was Leah. You hire an employee thinking they will, they will advance your business significantly, and then find one day they've been stealing with you. It's not Rachel, it was Leah. So what did, what did Jacob learn from this souring of life? A number of things he learned. One, he was humbled. He absolutely was humbled. If you want to do an incredible uh, character study, look at the life of Jacob. Look at the swings of his life. He begins as this braggadocious, this bombastic young child that, that was so sure that he had his mother's love over his brother that, that, he, that he stole his birthright. He stole his brother's inheritance for a for a, a bowl of stew, and then at the, at the end of their father's life, the beloved father's life that often sought after deathbed blessing upon their father, Jacob dressed up like his brother Esau and literally stole that blessing. I mean, how, how, how bold can you be? And then, after success had turned sour in his life, he was changed. He was, he was changed. He was a trickster early in life. He manipulated his brother and his father and even his mother's. Manipulators and users often don't humble easily except by failure. And that's what happened with Jacob. He was humbled. He recognized that he wasn't the answer to the world's problems. Instead, he was simply God's servant. Even though he was blessed incredibly by God, and he knew that, he recognized that this was not a blessing based upon his own goodness or upon his own scheming. He recognized that he was blessed by God because God was good, not because he was good. When Jacob's herds began to outnumber Laban's and the land could no longer support both of them, it was Jacob who gave Laban the pick of, of the land. He was humbled. He was also convicted. He recognized that he had done wrong throughout his life. He was convicted. 
He recognized and admitted and repented of how he had treated his brother and his father and and at times even his mother. He repented and turned from his evil ways, trying to find meaning and purpose. Not trying, he turned from his evil ways of trying to find meaning and purpose in his in his in his one-upmanship, and even trying to find meaning and purpose in his love for his wife Rachel. And after he began to repent of that, then he began to love his wife Leah as well. Even the thing that, again, even the the, the so-called failures in his life, he began to even recognize that that was God's gift into his life. As he was convicted, as he repented of his sin, and he was also changed. No doubt he was changed. In, In chapter In chapter 33, in chapter 33, just just really just not long after all of these incidents, he finally came to the conclusion that he must reconcile with his brother Esau. Again, this is the brother that he had stolen uh, his inheritance. He had stolen his father's blessing, deathbed blessing upon him. And because of that now, the younger brother, Jacob, was what literally was, was able to rule over the older brother, Esau. I mean, there were so many things. His brother Esau had pledged that if he ever saw him again, he would kill him. You want to talk about an estranged relationship. But he said this years later. Jacob said, no, please. And this is he's talking to his brother Esau. If I have found favor in your sight... And then accept my present from my hand, for I have seen your face, which is like seeing the face of God, and you have accepted me. Please accept my blessings that is brought to you, because God has dealt graciously with me, and because I have enough. Thus he urged him, and he, and he took it. And so Jacob and Esau finally reconciled their relationships. Jacob was absolutely changed when success turned sour. So my friend Rob that I told you about, I met him when I was in seminary. Rob's been a United Methodist pastor for the last 23 years. For the last decade, he has been serving as a district superintendent. He's an incredible, incredibly faithful leader incredibly faithful leader, committed to the gospel of Jesus Christ in a very, very difficult annual conference in which to serve. An annual conference in which he does not see eye to eye with his bishop, any of the other rest of the cabinet, and most of the pastors in his annual conference. But Rob and his family, they learned from the success that turned sour. They began to be humbled by that, They began to be convicted by that. They absolutely were changed by that. And I hope and pray, I hope and pray that when success turns sour for you, you'll not sulk up and get bitter about it. You won't throw a fit like I find myself doing so often. But instead, you'll recognize that God will use it for good always. Just like what I told the children. On those bad days, God will always redeem them and God will always use them for good. Would you bow with me?